turning this evening to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2 and verse 1. Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time, sad in his presence. And our subject this evening is identifying enemies of the word. Well, in these, this chapter, we see uh, that Nehemiah is a principal advisor, counsellor to the king, Artaxerxes, and uh, also he holds the um, ceremonial position of the king's cup-bearer. And it's debated whether which one led to the other. Presumably his being an officer of state led to his being the king's cup-bearer, which was very much a ceremonial position, though some feel it was the other way round. Well, whatever, uh, he holds both offices. And on this occasion, as you know, he is moved by the Lord to ask the king for special authority to go on a long mission to Judah and to Jerusalem because he's been so grieved to hear about the continuing uh, tragedy in Jerusalem. The war, the temple has been reconstructed, but it's not currently in very good use. And the, uh, most of the buildings in the city are still in very poor state, and the wall has been demolished, well, for years and years. And so the people are in a tragic condition and the Samaritans in the nations round about have, by various means, and we'll come to that, brought the population very low and the work of God has been discontinued for years. So Nehemiah is moved to seek office, to go and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, he's very disturbed in himself at the state of Jerusalem. He is rather anxious about the response and the reaction of the king. And he goes into his presence sad. Now it's often said that uh, this in itself would be offensive before the emperor of Persia, that uh, he should be sad in his presence. But I think it's more likely He's sad because of the state of affairs, the state of Jerusalem and Judah. And he's challenged by the king in verse 2. As we just work into the passage, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. The fear of Nehemiah. This is interesting. Why should he be sore afraid? Well, because he knows the king. He is a chief counsellor to the king. He knows the mind of the king. And the special favour that he's going to ask, that he should be released from the king's immediate service 
and that she, he should go as an emissary and king's representative to Judah and that he should rebuild it. There are a number of problems with this. To begin with, uh, the king is going to be somewhat angered. He knows him. He knows his mentality, his reactions. He's bound to be angered by the fact that Nehemiah thinks there is something in this world much more important than the king of Persia and his service. He's a committed man, committed to the king, privileged with high office. And this itself is likely to aggravate the king. Nehemiah would know that as a close counsellor. He would read the king. And also what he's going to ask, that he should go in order to rebuild a wall around Jerusalem. What does that mean? That Jerusalem will once again claim to be an independent nation? no longer under the Persian Empire? Does it mean there's going to be a rebellion? There's going to be a failure to pay homage and a breakdown of uh, rule in, that, in Judah, in that area? And that will inspire other nations to follow suit? Is the king seriously going to agree that his chief officer of state, or one of them, should go and re-establish in a very dangerous way, a city wall and reignite local pride and patriotism and nationalism, the king is hardly likely to agree to that. He knows the king. He knows what his reactions are going to be. Is the king going to agree to this? Because this is another religion. He seems to tolerate at the Persian court a number of Jews in high office, but they should want to go and glorify, in his eyes, their faith by way of distinction from the faith of the Persian Empire and Persian gods and Persian worship. That's going to be offensive too. There are other things we can think of. Nehemiah knows the king. There's great basis for his anxiety. God has moved him. And he's going to do it with great courage and faith in his God. But at the same time, he's a human being, and he knows the king only too well. And so he's very anxious about this. So we put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes. And the servants of God so often are called to do things which place them in great danger, uh, or unpopularity at least and they do have to go forward by faith and obey the Lord. So that's the fear of Nehemiah. It isn't something trivial, simply that the king would be un displeased, that he looked unhappy in his presence. There are much bigger things behind it all. And verse 3, here's the approach to the king. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, he must understand us. I'm, I am a Jew, I'm an Israelite, and all my forebears are there in that city. And I see now this 
in such a tragic condition. It's a very good way of putting it to the king and softening matters. He's careful, he's polite, he's got to be bold, but he doesn't abandon courtesy and care. And he summons the king to see it from his point of view. His entire background and links are there, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. And the king says unto him, verse 4, For what dost thou make request? Come to the point, he almost says. Let's tell me straight away, what are you asking for? Well, the anxiety is still there. And so, at the end of verse 4, the great example that we often point to of emergency prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king. And we're all in that position sometimes of needing to pray in an emergency. But this brief prayer, this emergency prayer, should come up in our lives constantly, many times perhaps in a day. Certainly every time you have an opportunity to witness, there's an emergency prayer before you launch out. Or when you're doing something that involves any kind of danger or difficulty, as a Christian, even a journey, you commit it to the Lord in prayer. Under pressure, under trial, under temptation, commit it to the Lord in prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king. And here again, the Nehemiah is very polite. Point number one, if it please the king, if it's good in your sight, subject to your needs, and your bidding, and your will. You are the king. And secondly, if thy servant have found favour in thy sight, if my work for you has commended itself, so that you're ready to trust me. Nehemiah is conscious of those two things. The king is the king. And he has to be respected. And also, uh, he has to earn favours from the king. Then he comes to the point that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. He wants to carry the king's seal. He wants to go under the protection of the king's authority. He would like the king's direction and he would like the king's help. And verse 6, the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, that's not Queen Esther by the way, Queen Esther was the queen of the preceding king, Ahasuerus, and the stepmother of the present king of Persia, Artaxerxes. The king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? Well, the answer is not recorded. Nehemiah simply says, So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. But we know that the time 
was 12 years. Whether that was the term he asked for or whether he asked for a shorter term and requested from Judah to have it extended, that we can't, we're not given those details, but it turned out to be 12 years that he was in Jerusalem in Judah. Verse 7, Moreover I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that's the river Euphrates, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Was that the forest of Lebanon? It's generally assumed so, though some people believe there was a, a great royal park that belonged to the king of Persia uh, down in the region there, and that had very special uh, timber grown, and he wanted to take from there. But there's no way to resolve that dispute. But this is the request that he may have permission to be given timber for beams for the gates of the palace which appertained to the house. That was a, a, a fortress which was uh, there in Jerusalem next to the house of God, but it needed to be rebuilt. It's the very fortress which after the developments of Herod became the fortress uh, Antonia. And the Apostle Paul, you remember, was imprisoned there. But this is its predecessor, fortress or citadel, which was adjacent to the temple. If that was going to be built. And for the wall of the city, what would they have used huge timber beams for? No idea. But they were needed, either for the, for the gates or as part of the wall itself. And then for the house that I shall enter into, unless we should imagine that Nehemiah is going to construct for himself a tremendous house for which he needed a special amount of timber, this would be the centre of administration. This would be the uh, uh, government building of Jerusalem. There apparently wasn't one. So the house that I shall enter into would not just have... Uh, the rooms where Nehemiah would live, but it would be the centre of administration for the whole of Judah. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me, the sovereignty of God. And always, both Ezra before and now Nehemiah, are careful to mention this. The king granted it, but the implication is that the king would not have done so, but for the sovereign action of God, according to the good hand of my God upon me. Well, the book had begun in prayer. Chapter 1, the bulk of it, is Nehemiah's wonderful prayer. Then there's the short emergency prayer. Then there, are the, there is the matter of dependence upon God. That's loud and clear right through the book of Nehemiah, first prayer, second dependence, and third giving God all the glory. The three rules of Nehemiah that come up repeatedly through the book, prayer, dependence, and glory to God. This is a good motto for us in every age. 
Every project, every action, every witness begins in prayer, is carried out in dependence upon God, and we don't forget to thank him and to praise him and to worship him and give him the glory, the three vital duties. Somebody a few weeks ago said to me, here is a link to a video you must look at. And it was the uh, worship service from a well-known church, one of the uh, big-time celebrity preachers of the internet who is supposed to be entirely reformed and uh, uh, very, very well-known and successful. And it was a worship service with a message part on it. Well, for various reasons, he wanted me to watch this and see this. But when I did so, it was rather alarming. It began with the preacher not calling to prayer, no invocation, no call to worship, nothing like that. In fact, no reference to God at all. The preacher came onto the platform to thunderous applause, if you please. Thunderous applause. Our hero. Our wonder man. And then the hero began to speak. And for a good five minutes, it was just boast after boast after boast. First boast was what we, he said, as a church, have accomplished. It was apparently the anniversary of something that the church was into, and uh, this had now extended regionally across a great area. But it was what we have accomplished. And then applause again, thunderous applause. First applause was for the hero, second applause was for all of us. Then there was another boast and a round of applause for us. Not us, you understand, them. <laughs> As a congregation, applauding themselves. And this happened four or five times. And then after that, still no prayer, still no call for, to worship, still no reference to God. But after that then, the preacher announced the conductor of the orchestra and the worship leader. And he was announced just as though it was a big time concert with hand gestures waving to him and, uh, and on he came, guess what? To thunderous applause. Another one being applauded. There's certainly by this time in the service far more applause for the hero, for the congregation, for the worship leader. We hadn't even started with any mention of God yet. This is a service of worship. It was quite staggering. And then the congregation rose to sing about four hymns uh, at very galloping pace with this large orchestra with a very, very loud percussion section banging out the timing as though it was rock rhythm. Not quite the same, but just as loud. And they were having, enjoying themselves. And the cameras 
looked at the congregation. I noticed that all the men had one hand in a pocket, a very, very casual, and you couldn't see their mouths moving. They weren't making much noise. The choir and the professionals were making all the noise. This was worship, reformed worship. And you go back to Nehemiah. You start with prayer. You depend upon the Lord. You glorify him in everything you do. Well, why am I talking about this? Dear friends, keep your eyes open. Some people may call themselves conservative, Christian and reformed, and they may even preach many true things, but their practices have completely abandoned the biblical standards of truth and worship. It's just nothing like a service of worship where you start with the Lord and he is everything. And we have to stick to that. We have to be earnest and sincere and feelingful and true to him in worship. But this motto of three things runs through the book of Nehemiah and we'll come across it repeatedly. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with him. Ezra didn't have that escort. Nehemiah does. And, uh, <clears throat> but then verse 10. When Sambalat, the Horonite, Sambalat is a Babylonian name. Uh, Horon is a city or a town in Moab. So you could read there, Sambalat the Moabite, traditional enemies of Israel. This is what were being known as the Samaritan nations round about. He was the governor, the Persian governor of Samaria. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, that's interesting, why is he called that? Tobiah the servant, you could say the slave, because he wasn't a slave now, but that's how he'd started. He was a slave or a servant. Tobiah was obviously very clever, and he'd gone up in the world. And now he was, uh, well, there's a difference of opinion. Either the governor on behalf of the Persian Empire of the area east of Jordan, or he was the chief administrator and secretary to Sambalat. It's a bit difficult to read which he was as the text goes on but he held high office and he was a great hater of the children of Israel. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, Ammonite, another traditional enemy of Israel, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Of course it grieved them. Why, they had their way. The rulers of the Samaritan neighbours, they wanted uh, Judah and Jerusalem to be downtrodden and chaotic and the people dismayed and disconsolate and utterly depressed 
They wanted poverty there. Of course, they wanted an income from there. They were running a great protection racket. They had got in their service many of the princes, the wealthy princes of Judah and the leaders, and they uh, uh, made a lot of money out of the people by lending money to them in their poverty. And Sambalat and Tobiah and others got a huge cut out of this. They made money out of these desperate people. They would constantly send marauding bands in to attack them and wound them and bring them down. They wanted Jerusalem in a downtrodden, miserable state. They certainly didn't want it to be strong again and asserting itself in the region. So there were enemies from the beginning and the picture is unfolding. Nehemiah knew who they were and he's very conscious that there are enemies everywhere to his mission. But we have to be too. We don't want to be. We don't want negative thoughts and thoughts of enemies, but here we're preaching the gospel, sounding it out, making it known. And we're surrounded by enemies in society and opponents. And they infiltrate the churches. And we can't work with them. We have to watch out for them. We'll come to that. Verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And just as we begin to think, he took three days rest to get over the three to four months journey from Babylon, from, uh, not, from Persia and from Susa. And then you find what he was doing or beginning to do in the, this three days. Verse 12. He was down to business immediately. I arose in the night. It's obvious to us that uh, this is something he's doing secretly. I and some few men with me. There's only a few. They came with him on the journey among the party that came to Jerusalem with Nehemiah. And they can be trusted. He's got to be careful of others. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. There's a new governor. What's he here for? Nehemiah didn't make any fanfare or any announcements until after his survey. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Presumably the men that accompanied him went on foot. That would be to keep this mission quiet. He didn't want the noise of animals other than his own. So it's a secret survey in the night. And he describes it, verse 13. And I invite you just to imagine it from Nehemiah's point of view. I went out by night. I had heard all about the desolation in Jerusalem. And of course the walls which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar so many years earlier but nothing has been done I went out by night by the gate of the valley the valley of Kidron presumably even before the dragon well don't know where that was it's not elsewhere mentioned and to the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem and now he saw for himself what he'd been hearing about and they were just ruins. 
and in the darkness it would have seemed even more gloomy and depressing. They were broken down, and the gates thereof consumed with fire. Verse 14, Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, which is probably the pool of Siloam. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass, which suggests that there was so much rubbish down there, he couldn't examine it in any detail. Rubbish and rubble piled everywhere. Verse 15, Then went up I in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall from that other angle, and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley, Kidron again, and so returned. And verse 16, the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. And then a piece of elaborate description here. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. So his survey was a complete secret. But it had to be surveyed. How much is there to be done? What materials can be used from the rubble? Where should we start? We've got to be careful of security. If we choose the wrong part of the wall to begin and marauding bands attack, is there any defence in that region? He had to work it all out how this was going to be done, because it was going to be done with considerable opposition. What are the most important parts to execute first? And so on. And it had to be thought out very quickly and put into action as soon as possible. And these are all lessons, really, for us. We have to think like Nehemiah. We have to think in terms of surveying the scene. I got great help from Nehemiah over 50 years ago when my wife and I first came here. And we were in a very depleted condition here at the tabernacle. And there were few people, and most of the people were very, very elderly. They were golden people, most of them, very earnest people, but they were very elderly, and there was no money, there was no funding, all the reserves had been spent, and so on, and the maintenance of the building, even the winter heating bills were far, far greater than the Sunday offerings. So what was going to happen? What would take place here? We had to think and survey. What must come first? What's, what's the matter? What's the problem? What are we not doing that we need to do? And we surveyed the scene and we started to think. Well, we've got to have a separate prayer meeting to begin with. We had one of these combined prayer meeting Bible studies. That wasn't historic. That's not how Spurgeon did it or our forebears. That has happened since World War II. We've got to go back to having a prayer meeting. You start with prayer. Then we've got to rely upon the Lord. 
But what do we have? What has the Lord given us? Well, he's given us the gospel. We've got to have an evangelistic service. One of our Sunday services, we have to go back to the old traditions of the church. One of our Sunday services must be an evangelistic service. Every pastor at the tabernacle in its history, with the exception of one, has believed fervently in the universal tender of salvation. The free offer of the gospel. There's one who didn't. And that's a very curious thing. I don't really want to digress. But John Gill didn't believe in the free offer of the gospel. He did not uphold the universal tender of salvation. But yet, curiously, dear John Gill practiced the proclamation of the free offer of salvation. Even though if you read his Cause of God and Truth and his systematic theology, his theology is against it. And you know when George Whitfield began to preach the gospel, this is the beginning, the first sermons of the Great Awakening of the 18th century, when he began to preach in a foggy October morning in 1739 on the nearby Kennington Common. Do you know who his greatest supporter was? And he was preaching the free offer of the gospel like nobody else knew how. His greatest supporter was John Gill. John Gill, in his great fraternal, urged all the ministers to get out the congregations to support him. He sent his church members at the Carter Lane Chapel round to all the coffee shops of London. And the crowds came out. 40,000 people, it's variously estimated. And the first and the leading patron and supporter was John Gill. Ask me to explain that, I can't. He was a theoretical hyper-Calvinist. He was a practical evangelist. So that little digression only entitles me to say that every pastor that there's ever been in the long history of the tabernacle since 1650 has practiced the free offer of salvation. And we must do the same. So we had a distinctive, I hope persuasive, gospel service. But we were following the steps of Nehemiah, surveying the needs, praying for help, responding to them, implementing the things that should be in position. We had to have a policy, a sense of direction, an aim. That's what's badly needed, even today. That we try to do this in our conferences. Our long history now of schools of theology annually and various things, we touch on issues, matters that are concern. If we can only make a contribution, things that have gone wrong in the churches, whether it's the charismatic movement, whether it's the tendencies in hermeneutics, whether it's the need to re-implement the old-style working church, 
we touch on issues which matter because if you survey the scene that's what you do but it isn't popular you look at the other conferences and they do much good undeniable they have some good subject but they never touch issues they never deal with things that need to be reformed need to be put right we have to do this in our church we have to do it at, in the larger church the scene at large if we if we have opportunity this is the kind of thing we're learning about in Nehemiah and we'll see the battle that results as things go on our time really is up but just looking quickly through these verses verse 17 then said I unto them all the people you see the distress that we are in that's the evil or the harm we are in and the consequences of this how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire then the great invitation but I'm sure this took a good many words to say come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach a cause of shame is the meaning of the Hebrew word reproach a cause of shame shame to the Lord that the city of the Lord from which emanates the teaching of the word of God and the worship is a broken down trampled underfoot city in poverty and a disgrace to the world we are a shame to the Lord and to the world we cut such a dreadful figure oh friends look at us in England look at the few churches and the smallness of the churches and the weakness of the churches look at the state of affairs taken nationally we are a reproach we are a shame to the Lord if Nehemiah came among us he'd say look we've got to be doing this and this and this every church a proclaimer of the gospel every place the people committed and serving the Lord we've got to get down to work he would say that we be no more a shame or shameful thing but then he goes about it so helpfully I must close I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon them he encouraged them by telling them of the remarkable providences by which he'd been given the royal seal of approval and help and support and letters of safety to quieten down the hostile governors and when they heard this they said let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for this good work Samballat, Tobiah and Gushem the Arabian laughed us to scorn you can't do it these have been ruins now for 150 years what are you going to do you can't do it you weak and feeble Israelites Judahites 
and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? This was going to be their political direction. You only want to build those walls and strengthen your country so that you can declare unilateral independence from Persia and set up a rebellion. That's what they're going to say against him. And verse 20, Then answered I them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we whose servants will arise and build. But ye, the Samaritans, have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. He's going to practice biblical separation from anyone who would hinder the work of God. And that's really introductory to the whole story which begins to unfold with so much cunning and so many surprises from the enemies of God.